welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. Our lead story today concerns the worldwide commemoration of 9-11. It's hard to believe that it's been 20 years since the World Trade Center was attacked, initiating a whole new phase in world history. And the question is, well, yes, the United States can always win wars. I learned that when I was in the United States Infantry at the height of the Vietnam War. We have the firepower. We have the industrial complex. The United States can always win wars. But the question is, can we win the peace? In other words, can we win the hearts and minds of the people of the Middle East so we don't have to repeat this all over again and spend trillions of dollars trying to impose our will? And then I'd like to say a few things about the coronavirus, the good news and the bad news. The good news is we are approaching herd immunity in certain sectors of the world as we approach near 70% uh, vaccination rate. We're not there yet, but we're getting close. However, the bad news is it turns out that the risk of dying from the virus is 11 times greater if you are unvaccinated versus people who are vaccinated. That's right. You are 11 times more likely to die if you are unvaccinated. And then I'd like to say a few things about, well, the weather. Look at what's happening to California and the West. Even a tourist area, southern Lake Tahoe, is being engulfed in flames, fires out of control. And take a look at Hurricane Ida, which ripped right through the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area, creating havoc. Is this the new normal? That is, droughts, which contain, which create gigantic firestorms. Simultaneously, we have inundation with floods, with massive hurricanes. Is this the sign of global warming? Well, we'll say a few things about that, the pros and cons of that. And then I'd like to say a few things about, well, your health. We all know that sugar is bad for you, but precisely how bad is it for you? Well, the latest numbers have come in. 100,000 people have been analyzed, and we now realize that the cost, the cost of too much sugar in your diet is overwhelming. If you cut 20% of sugar from packaged foods in your diet, cut 40% of soda, you can prevent 2.5 million cardiovascular diseases, the leading cause of death in the United States. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories the past week. The United States is now looking back at 20 years on the war on terror. Have we won that war? Are we safer now, 20 years after 9-11? Let me just say a few things that my apartment house was, well, right next to 9-11. When 9-11 happened, I could not go home. 
It turns out that all traffic below Canal Street in Manhattan was sealed off. The whole area was basically cut off from the rest of the world. I could not go home for weeks. I had to stay in friends' house. Finally, I was able to get access to my apartment after a few weeks, and I talked to one of the neighbors. And he said that just as 9-11 was emerging, he looked and saw the buildings, the World Trade Centers, burning out of control. And then he saw something that he will never forget. He'll never forget the sight of people jumping off the World Trade Center to a certain death. People jumping off, hurling tens of floors as they were hovering above the streets of Manhattan. On one hand, behind them were flames, the chaos of the devastation of 9-11, certain death if they stayed there. And the other possibility was to, well, jump off the building, hurl yourself tens of floors above the surface of Manhattan, and hope, hope and pray that you may land on something soft. It was a sight that he would never forget. Well, I'll never forget the fact that I was in the military from 1968 to 1970, at the height of the Vietnam War. I was in the United States Infantry. And we had a demonstration of firepower. We had one demonstration I'll never forget in Fort Benning, Georgia, of what we can unleash on the battlefield. We can unleash napalm, white phosphorus, grenades, machine gun fire, incredible, incredible firepower on a peasant nation. And yet, it was clear to all of us watching this demonstration that in spite of all the might that we had, we were losing the war. And my fellow GIs would say to me, you know, America, we always win. We can never fail. We have overwhelming firepower. We can win the war. The question is, can we win the peace? And I said to myself, we are losing the peace. We're not winning over the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. Well, ask yourself this question. After 20 years of spending trillions of dollars of resources by amassing firepower on a scale that we've never seen before, are you safer now than you were 20 years ago? In other words, yes, we can win the war, but can we win the peace? Have we won over the hearts and minds of the people of the Middle East? Think about that. Because winning the war on terror is not just matching the terrorists bullet for bullet, bomb for bomb, helicopter for helicopter. No, it's winning over the hearts and minds of the people. That's the key. So ask yourself a question. After spending trillions of dollars and shedding our blood, are you safer now because we've won over the hearts and minds of the people of the Middle East? Well, that's something to think about after 20 years. Well, let's say a few things about the Delta virus, which is ravaging some areas. But there's also a trend of good news, too. Certain nations, smaller nations, are approaching 70% vaccination rate of adults. That's good news because once you start to hit numbers like that, we're at the light at the end of the tunnel because we're headed toward herd immunity. 
Herd immunity does not mean that you're 100% vaccinated. It just means that so many people are vaccinated or immune that the virus cannot spread easily and therefore is stopped in its tracks. However, the danger is, what about the uh, 30 to 50% of the people who are not vaccinated? They are a reservoir, a reservoir of mutants. And that's where the Delta virus comes in. The Delta virus is many times more uh, infectious than the previous alpha version, which in turn is more infectious than the original virus. In fact, 90%, just in a few weeks, 90% of all the infections in the United States are due to this new strain, the Delta virus. It turns out the Delta virus is more infectious than the previous version, but it's not necessarily more lethal in terms of the people it kills. However, the bad news. The latest figures show that when you compare 100,000 people, you compare the people who are vaccinated to the people who are unvaccinated, you are, you are, are at five times greater risk of infection if you are unvaccinated. Five times greater risk. You are 30 times, facing a 30 times greater risk of hospitalization if you are unvaccinated. And here's the killer. You are 11 times more likely to die of the virus if you are unvaccinated versus the vaccinated. Now you ask yourself a simple question. Why is it that so many people don't want to get vaccinated? Well, many personal reasons. But among them, people feel that there are side effects. Yes, there are side effects. There are side effects to just walking out in the street. There are side effects to anything. But compare the side effects to vaccination, which are extremely tiny, versus the side effect of being unvaccinated, which is death. Think about that. Of course, not everyone is going to die because you're infected, but the chances of dying are 11 times greater if you are unvaccinated versus those people who are vaccinated. Now, in other words, for people who don't want to be vaccinated, you're endangering not just yourself, you're endangering your loved ones. You're endangering the people around you because you can spread the virus. So yeah, you have the right to commit suicide in that sense. It's a free country. But do you have the right to infect your own relatives, the people closest to you, knowing that in some sense it could be a death warrant for them? Well, think about that. Because it's not just a question of, well, it's my right to not be vaccinated. It's a question that you're spreading the disease and you're preventing us from reaching herd immunity. And just remember that more mutations are coming up. Already they're looking at mutations beyond the Delta. New, new kinds of mutations could be springing up because people refuse to be vaccinated. And also I'd like to say a few things about global warming and the weather. Have you noticed recently that the weather has gone out of control? On one hand, take a look at California. Gigantic forest fires, not just one, but hordes of forest fires engulfing tourist areas. Think of it. Southern Lake Tahoe, a beautiful resort area, 
up in flames. Think about it. People's lives, hopes, dreams going up in flames because, well, because temperatures are higher, because of drought, lack of water. And so we see the effects of what happens when you have climate change. However, there's some people with a certain amount of validity who are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, back up. There's no direct link between global warming and massive forest fires engulfing California. Or for that matter, take a look at Hurricane Ida, which rampaged across New York and New Jersey. The critics say there's no direct link between Hurricane Ida and global warming. So what's the truth? Well, let's go to the science. Science makes a difference between weather and climate. Now, we think of the weather and climate being more or less the same thing, but no, they're quite different. The weather is what you see outside your door. The weather is what's hitting you right now, wherever you are. That's called the weather. Climate is an average concept. Climate is looking at trends, looking at trends in weather patterns and temperature patterns, looking at the big picture. That's climate. And so, yeah, there is some truth to the statement that there's no direct one-to-one -one link between massive flooding and global warming and massive forest fires and global warming. You can't say, aha, I see a direct link between one and the other. However, if you take a look at the big picture, the averages, all the indications are up. And why is that? First of all, take a look at the forest fires that we have raging in California. Yes, there are many factors involved, not just global warming. On one hand, we have the fact that many areas are lax and allow tinder and brush to accumulate. They should be removed because, of course, that's the first thing that goes up in flames, not the trees necessarily, but the brush and the debris, which could be cleared out. That's a problem. And so, in other words, there are things that you can do. That is, for example, overdevelopment. There are areas in California which are overdeveloped. And so it's like a waiting time bomb waiting to explode. However, as I said before, climate is an average. And when you look at the averages, you see the temperatures are rising. Humidity is to the point where it gets very difficult to contain these forest fires. And as a consequence, the trend is up. So again, you can't say that this one fire was directly caused by global warming. But what you can say is that global warming accelerates and feeds the fire, so to speak, that creates huge parts of California and the Northwest going up in flames. Now take a look at the hurricanes. We're now seeing hurricane after hurricane come with enormous force. Hurricane Ida surprised everybody. Three inches of rain in one hour in Central Park in Manhattan. Three inches of rain in just one hour. We haven't seen that before. Hurricane Ida should have been a mild tropical storm, but no, it barreled through the Northeast area, creating tremendous amount of havoc, drowning many innocent individuals. And why is that? Well, again, take a look at climate, that is the average. On average, the temperature of the Caribbean is rising. As a consequence, 
Well, where does the energy of a hurricane come from? It comes from warm water. That's right. Warm water is the fuel which energizes monster hurricanes like Ida. Hurricanes start off as a mild tropical storm off the coast of Africa. Then this mild tropical storm barrels its way across the Atlantic, gaining some energy, but it gains much more energy as it enters the Caribbean area. Warm water feeds the hurricane. Warm water causes air to rise. As it rises, it spins because of the spin of the earth, and rising air spinning creates the beginning of a hurricane. So it's like bowling. You are bowling, and the pins are the islands of Haiti, Cuba, and the Florida and Louisiana coast. Those are the pins. And the bowling ball is this monster storm accumulating energy as it goes into the Gulf of Mexico, causing havoc in the process. So, once again, can you definitely point to say, aha, I know for a fact that one hurricane is caused by global warming? The answer is no. Many factors are involved with creating a hurricane. But because temperatures are rising in the Gulf of Mexico, because it means more water, more water can be contained as moisture in the air, so a combination of higher temperature more moisture in the air means that hurricanes are going to be energized as they hit the U.S. coastline. And so we have to put that into proper perspective. The fact that, yes, we are paying the pace of warming when you look at the climate, which is changing right before our eyes. And now let me say something about, well, what's on your dinner table? For years, doctors saying that, yes, too much sugar is bad for you. It's something that we hear all the time. But take a look at the numbers. The latest numbers coming out from the health department are incredible. The latest numbers show that in the United States, if you could somehow cut sugar consumption by 20% from packaged foods and cut 40% of soda, you could prevent 2.5 million cardiovascular diseases, and that, of course, is the leading cause of death in the United States. Just think of that. Just throw away one or two cans of soda per week, and you can begin to affect the rate of obesity, diabetes, and any number of diseases. First of all, you can reduce diabetes by 750 thousand incidences of diabetes just by reducing a consumption of processed sugar and soda, 750,000. Now take a look at the obesity rate in the United States. It's staggering. Two in five Americans are now obese. Two in five. And you can see it now in children. Children coming to school are becoming obese like their parents. One in two have diabetes or are pre-diabetic. Think about that. One in two are diabetic or pre-diabetic. One in two have some cardiovascular disease. And so this is a health hazard greater than the coronavirus. Think about that. 
Of course, we rightly are concerned about this virus, which is rampaging around the world, causing so much death and destruction. But look at what's happening right in our own backyard. Obesity, out of control. Diabetes, out of control. And who eventually pays for it? Not just the people who die, not the loved ones who die, but society itself has to pay for the care and the destruction caused by these individuals. And so these numbers are staggering if you think about it. Also in the news, we like to look up in the sky to see the splendor of the heavens. And once in a while, an astronomer makes a, a, a discovery that galvanizes the scientific world. This time, it's a comet. No ordinary comet. Comets, of course, can light up the night sky for weeks at a time. Uh, meteors, however, simply dart across the night sky in about one second. In fact, on a typical evening, by looking up, once every two minutes or so, you can see this streak of light come racing across the night sky. That's a meteor. Comets are a totally different thing. Comets are the thing of lore. When there's a comet in the sky, it means the king must die. It signals some kind of vast historical disruption in human history. For example, in the year 1066, there was a famous battle between William of Normandy and King Harold of England. A comet, Halley's Comet, sailed over the battlefield, paralyzed the troops of King Harold. William, the conqueror, defeated King Harold and created the British dynasty of today. In other words, in some sense, England is a child of a comet, Halley's Comet. Well, that same comet, Halley's Comet, sailed over England in the 1600s and mesmerized a young gentleman by the name of Isaac Newton. He was determined to figure out the laws that govern Halley's Comet. And sure enough, he worked out the law of gravitation and the calculus to prove once and for all that comets come back because they are in elliptical orbits. Now, astronomers, by accident, looking at the night sky, have discovered yet another comet. This time, it's the biggest comet ever recorded in history. It's over 100 miles across, a giant among comets. Now, realize, for example, that Halley's Comet, the comet that sailed over London in 1066, creating the British dynasty of today, that same comet which sailed over Isaac Newton, inspiring him to write down the laws of motion and gravity and therefore usher in the Industrial Revolution, well, that same comet, Halley's Comet, is about 20 miles across. It's a good-sized comet. We've actually approached the comet with probes and photographed it. It turns out the Halley's Comet looks like a peanut. Two lobes stuck together, and it means that eventually these two lobes will crack apart because the comet loses ice on every pass around the sun and will have not one but two comets circulating around the sun. Well, this time, this comet is a monster comet, a hundred miles across, bigger than all known comets of the past. Now, you're not going to see this immediately. This comet is way out there and out of space. It'll take years 
before it comes within range, but it could be quite interesting because comets tell us about the origin of the solar system. You see, first of all, we know that surrounding the sun, we have rocky planets. We have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, the rocky planets circulating around the sun. Beyond that, we have the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, huge gigantic gas giants circulating around the solar system. What's beyond that? What's beyond that is the short period comets, like Halley's Comet. Short period comets are comets in the plane of the solar system. They're periodic. They can come back once every several decades to once every several thousand years. And we track them, and we know their trajectories pretty well. That's called the Kuiper Belt. Then there's the Oort Cloud. The Oort Cloud is probably where this comet came from. They are long-period comets. They may only make one pass, perhaps just one pass through the solar system to be flung into outer space, never to be seen again. They exist in a sphere, a sphere of debris surrounding the sun in a spherical shell. For the most part, these comets are stationary. They don't do anything. They just stay there in this sphere. However, once in a while, there's some kind of perturbation, maybe a collision, some kind of disturbance in the Oort cloud. And then these comets start to come barreling down toward the Earth and they have so much energy, perhaps they fling around the sun in one pass, never to be seen again. These are called long-period comets. And why do we study them? They are dangerous. They're dangerous precisely because they're not periodic. You see, the Oort cloud comets, like Halley's Comet, we know they come by, for example, every 76 years, like clockwork. We know where they are. We know they're periodic. However, a long-period comet, way out there in this spherical Oort cloud, they're not periodic. And in a nightmare scenario, Hollywood, of course, loves nightmare scenarios. In a nightmare scenario, one comet in the Oort cloud could be nudged for some reason, maybe a collision, and then come barreling down toward the solar system, toward the sun, swing around the backside of the sun so that we wouldn't see it, and then emerge full blast with a tail on the other side of the sun, and it would hit the Earth in a matter of just a few weeks. How much warning would we have? Zero. We would just have a few weeks' warning. We would see this gigantic comet with a tail hurling around the sun. And as we see it for the first time, we realize that it has our name on it. Now, some people even believe that that may have wiped out the dinosaurs. Yes, there are some scientists who believe that a comet with a periodicity measured in millions of years, perhaps slammed into the Yucatan of Mexico 66 million years ago, wiping out the dinosaurs. Well, I should point out that that has not been proven, even though there are some physicists and astronomers who have proposed this theory very, very carefully by doing the mathematics, it has not yet been verified. But the point is, Mother Nature constantly surprises us, and this comet, which will light up the night sky, is the biggest comet ever recorded in the history of astronomy.
Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Well, in the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about the future, your future. What will life be like in the future? What will a computer, the internet, medicine, what will they look like? in the future. We're going to bring on futurist Ray Kurzweil, who's written about the singularity and what happens when machines begin to rival human intelligence. And also I should point out that if you want to know more about what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers, and I have about four million fans on Facebook, so, once again, the website you should go to to find out more about my work is mkaku, M-K-A-K-U dot O-R-G. Mr. Kurzweil, the first question for you is, how did you first get interested in robots and artificial intelligence? Uh, I've actually had in mind being an inventor since I was at the age of five. And age of 12, I discovered computers. I built some primitive computers myself and got access to one uh, part of a summer job and quickly became fascinated with the ability to kind of model the world, albeit primitively at that time, in the computer and create virtual realities uh, and also model our thinking processes. Quickly became uh, interested actually in pattern recognition, which is my view is, is the fundamental basis of human intelligence rather than logical sequential analytical thinking. And a project I did in high school was to build pattern recognition models of melodies, and I would feed in the melodies of Mozart or Chopin, and it would build a pattern recognition model and then write original melodies in the same style from that model, uh, which were recognizable, kind of sounded like second-rate compositions from a second-rate student of Chopin and Mozart. Uh, And that started really a lifelong fascination and pattern recognition, which is really my primary technical field. Okay, and let's talk about your book, uh, The Age of Spiritual Machines. Uh, First of all, what is a spiritual machine? Is that a contradiction in terms? Uh, The primary uh, concept of spirituality is really consciousness. Uh, If we consider a being or an entity to be conscious, then we consider it to have spiritual value. And if you look at all the different religious traditions, uh, what they really mean by a soul and by spiritual reality is is consciousness, an entity that really has subjective experience and can feel pain and joy, uh, as opposed to just the conventional concept of a machine, which is uh, operating by some kind of automatic process. And we don't worry much today about causing pain and suffering to our computer programs. Uh, But our computer software is still millions of times simpler than the human brain. We do find, if we look at the human brain, that we actually can model with great precision neurons and even substantial clusters of neurons. We can talk more about that. And we will have machines, uh, which is to say non-biological entities, that do have the complexity and richness and depth of the human brain, indeed modeled on the principles of operation of the human brain within a few decades. And 
when these entities claim to be conscious, to be joyful, fearful, angry, uh, and so on, unlike, let's say, the computer characters in, in video games today, those entities, a few decades from now, will be as convincing as humans. They'll have all the subtle emotional cues that we associate with somebody really having those subjective experiences. So are they conscious? Some philosophers, philosophers will say, no, they're not squirting human neurotransmitters. You can't be conscious if you're not biological. Uh, but there won't be any clear distinction. We won't be able to separate them from any kind of objective observation. And my prediction, and this is really not a philosophical statement, but a psychological and political prediction, is that the bulk of humans, unenhanced humans, will consider these non-biological entities to be conscious. In any event, they'll be very intelligent to be able to convince us that they're conscious, and they'll get angry at us if, if we don't believe them. Uh, and it'll be an actual political and, and legal issue as well. Uh, in my view, the, the real issue of consciousness is not something we can resolve scientifically, because science involves third-party objective observation. Consciousness is inherently first-party subjective experience, and there is a gap there. Some people go on to say, well, since it's not scientific, it's not an important question. I would turn that around and say it's really a very fundamental question. It shows that there is a need for philosophy outside of science. Uh, but these will become real compelling questions as opposed to just abstract philosophical debates in this 21st century. Okay, and let's talk about the past first as a guide to the future. Back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, there were dazzling breakthroughs in artificial intelligence theory. Uh, we had the first machines, for example, that could play chess and checkers. Not very well, but they could at least play the game. Uh, they could solve simple algebra theorems. Uh, they could even play doctor to a degree and do simple diagnoses. And there were all these fantastic uh, predictions that just within a few years, uh, humans will be put in a zoo uh, we'll all be zoo animals, and our creations will throw peanuts at us and make us dance behind bars because look at how fast computers are learning. And then there was the movie 2001, and, well, the year 2001 came and went, and we still do not have the robot Hal, the murderous robot in Arthur C. Clarke's famous movie that could pilot a spaceship, uh, could play chess, and interact with humans as if it was a human itself. So the question is, what happened to the dream of the 1950s and 60s when everyone was predicting that humans would be obsolete by the 1970s? Well, your observation is, is correct. Uh, I would say it wasn't everyone predicting that. There were some famous uh, predictions from uh, Simon and Newell at Carnegie Mellon, uh, which came into disrepute. But uh, there was over-optimism because machines were doing adult activities, like solving some unsolved theorems from Russell and Whitehead and uh, doing these adult uh, activities, playing chess, uh, in some narrow cases making medical diagnoses as well as doctors and so on. So it seemed it wasn't, wouldn't be long before a computer could do everything. Uh, another 10 years went by, and we realized that computers, while they were able to do these those high-level analytic tasks, we're not able to do some things that a four-year-old can do, which is, let's say, tell the difference between a dog and a cat or recognize faces. And this is really a fundamental issue, in my view, that the, the fundamental basis of human intelligence is not analytic, logical thinking. And in fact, machines 
can do that a lot better than humans in most cases. Uh, the fundamental basis of, of human intelligence is pattern recognition. We can see that in the contrast with how machines play chess, which is this minimax combinatorial expansion of move counter moves, uh, which it does largely through brute force. We can look at millions or even hundreds of millions of board positions in a second. Uh, Kasparov says he looks at less than one board position in a second, but humans use their tremendous powers of pattern recognition to recognize situations they've thought about before. And we don't think fast enough. Our inner neuronal connections compute 200 calculations per second, which is about 10 to 100 million times slower than electronic circuits, but we have 100 trillion of them all computing simultaneously, self-organizing information is is really represented as a pattern. No key connection is, is all that important. It's a very different paradigm from computers we're used to, and it's a very good architecture for recognizing patterns in a profound way. That is really the heart of, of human intelligence. Now, we have been making uh, steady progress in pattern recognition. I could give many examples of that, uh, both in terms of recognizing language and speech, character recognition, all improved gradually. Even in chess, machines have become better qualitative players, so you have uh, deep fritz and, uh, and the current programs uh, working actually as well as deep blue, despite the fact that they're about 100 times slower, because they're doing a better job of, of pattern recognition. Uh, so we are making steady progress on that, and that is really the key uh, issue now. And part of the guidance we'll get in terms of creating the templates of human-level pattern recognition is to actually understand how humans do it, which brings up the issue of reverse engineering the human brain. It wasn't long ago before people uh, were saying, well, you know, our intelligence is just below the level necessary to actually understand our own intelligence. But what we're finding is that as we're able to actually instrument the brain and see what's going on <clears throat> and our ability to scan the human brain uh, and to actually see the connections and the firings of inner neuronal connections and synapses is increasing, actually doubling every year. Uh, we are able to develop very detailed mathematical models of neurons and neuron clusters. Uh, Lloyd Watts uh, and his colleagues have actually created a reverse engineering of the whole acoustic uh, area of the brain involving 12 different regions with a great deal of detail uh, have re-implemented that in, in software and submitted that to psychoacoustic tests, which performs very comparably to human uh, auditory perception. Uh, if you follow all the exponential trends in computation, communication, brain scanning, exponentially growing knowledge of the human brain, it's, I think, conservative to say we will have reverse-engineered the principles of operation of the human brain within a quarter century, uh, and that will provide us you know, more powerful, biologically inspired methods for pattern recognition. Okay, well, we've had several AI specialists on the radio show before, uh, among them Rodney Brooks of uh, MIT, the director of the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And I asked him a key question, and that is, well, how powerful are the MIT robots? Uh, and he was very proud to say that uh, he's the godfather of the Mars rover, an advanced robot which can actually, which actually wandered on the surface of Mars. But he was honest and said that our, his most advanced robots have the intelligence of a cockroach. 
Uh, in fact, cockroaches do it a lot better, he said. Cockroaches can scope out environments, see, see obstacles, boulders, move, maneuver around them, and they're quite good at this. And uh, uh, robots at Carnegie Mellon and Stanford, well, when they walk down the hall, it's lucky if they don't gouge out a piece of the, uh, the wallpaper when they walk down the wall, dock down, walk down the hallway. So how smart are our robots? Uh, are our robots really so dumb that they are really insect level at the present time, barely able to understand chairs, uh, tables, the ceiling, the roof, uh, people maneuvering around the room? How smart are the robots today? Well, robots and artificial intelligence in general uh, are operating far below biological levels, uh, both in terms of hardware and software. I think it's worthwhile talking about both of those, but also to understand that we're making exponential progress in both in both of these realms. And exponential progress really sneaks up on you. And just to use an analogy, Kasparov played the best machines in the 1990 at chess, and they were pathetic, and he scoffed at them. And it was just inconceivable that they would ever reach this level. But they gradually got better. They're doubling in performance every year, gaining 40 press points every year, and chess chess scale is exponential, uh, and then they surpassed him, uh, operating at or beyond his level by 1997, uh, we'll see the same thing in other areas, and it, it's easy to lose sight of uh, tremendous power of exponential growth. Uh, we are doubling computation at least every year, and we'll, we'll talk uh, a little bit later about uh about the issue of Moore's Law, but I, w- I believe that this phenomenon will continue past Moore's Law into three-dimensional computing. Uh, and in terms of software, we're making exponential progress, as I mentioned, in re- understanding and reverse engineering the principles of operation of the human brain. Uh, there's a new brain scanning method now that's being developed, which will be available within a couple of years. They will actually be able to see individual nerve fibers firing in a cluster of thousands of neurons at very high resolution, very high, high resolution also in terms of time scale, which will really give us the means to reverse engineer those circuits. I mean, so far, we've been really unable to see what's going on. Uh, it's very hard to diagnose a circuit if you can't instrument it, but if you can put sensors on in the right place and, and see what's going on, it's very straightforward to reverse engineer. Uh, the human brain, of course, is created by a genome without that doesn't have very much information in it. Even though the human brain itself appears to contain thousands of trillions of bytes, the genome only has about 12 million bytes of information to characterize the initial design of the brain, because there's a lot of random wiring in the way it's actually constructed, which then self-organizes to reflect its experience with the world. So the principles of operation are of a complexity that we can't understand, and that will provide us at least biologically inspired paradigms for the software of intelligence. So the, the capabilities of, of all of these systems will, uh, will improve quite steadily, uh, and we will master different levels of biological intelligence. Ultimately, I believe within uh, less than three decades, by 2029, uh, these machines will be operating at human levels and will combine human levels of intelligence, the subtlety and suppleness of human pattern recognition with some of the natural advantages of machines, most notable of which is the ability to instantly share knowledge. 
Now let's talk a little bit about Moore's Law, the doubling time you mentioned of 18 months for computers, meaning that at Christmas time, your computers are almost twice as powerful as they were the previous Christmas. Uh, exponential growth in bacteria, for example, eventually seals off, otherwise bacteria would take over the entire planet Earth. And exponential uh, factors do taper off because of external effects. Now with Moore's Law and computers, uh, the engine driving Moore's Law is ultraviolet uh, etching technology by which we can etch tinier and tinier transistors on a silicon wafer the size of your thumb. But eventually the transistors get so tiny, you hit the quantum theory. And at that point, you get short circuits. Leakage takes place. All hell breaks loose. And by 2020, um, all bets are off. Uh, the Intel, one of the senior engineers at Intel, uh, admitted recently in a, in a major paper that yes, they can see the end of the the end of the tunnel. And that is at a certain point, it's going to be prohibitively difficult to etch silicon components that are tinier and tinier, and eventually you get leakage because you don't know where the electrons are. Some people have said, let's make three-dimensional cubes. But the problem there is you have heat generation, enormous quantities of heat generated in three-dimensional cubes. So the question is, what happens after 2020 when all hell breaks loose and Silicon Valley becomes a rust belt? Well, it's a key question, and to examine that, uh, I've done a number of things. Uh, I have been an ardent student of technology trends. I've been uh, <coughs> measuring the actual power of different technologies <coughs> for 25 years. have a team of people doing that. One thing I did is put 49 uh, famous computers over the last century, uh, long before there was a Moore's Law, on an exponential chart. And this exponential growth has been going on not just for Moore's Law, but back uh, through five different paradigms. Moore's Law, the shrinking of transistors on a flat integrated circuit, was not the first, but the fifth paradigm to provide exponential growth to computing. And every time one paradigm ran out of steam, because as, as you correctly point out, every method of exponential growth eventually runs out of capacity. Rabbits in Australia eat up the vegetation and stop growing exponentially, they even reverse direction. Uh, every time that happened, another paradigm came along and started another S-curve of exponential growth. Uh, they were shrinking vacuum tubes to make to continue exponential growth. Finally, they couldn't shrink them anymore and keep the vacuum. That paradigm ended. Transistors came along. And the next paradigm will be three-dimensional computing. We live in a three-dimensional world. Our brain's organized in three dimensions. Our brain, by the way, uses a very cumbersome, very slow uh electrochemical information processing method uh, that's 200 calculations per second. Uh, they're digitally controlled analog transactions, but they're roughly comparable to, to ca calculations uh, at least 10 million times slower than electronic circuits. But it gets a tremendous power from the fact that it's organized in three dimensions. Now, the brain itself is an existence proof of the feasibility of organizing circuits in three dimensions. Uh, and dealing with the heat problem. Uh, I proposed three-dimensional computing as the sixth paradigm to replace Moore's Law, which was the fifth paradigm in my book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, four years ago. It was considered a radical notion then. I would say it's much more of a mainstream uh, expectation at this time. There's been tremendous progress in building, working three-dimensional circuits over the last four years. It's been a steady flow of breakthroughs, including conceptual 
examinations of this thermal issue that you alluded to, and there are ways of designing the circuits in, in porous ways to deal uh, with, the, with the heat issue. Uh, one watt of power, which would not generate uh, that much heat, uh, would be sufficient to emulate human brain capacity uh, in a cube that would be very tiny. Uh, so the thermal issue is, in fact, a key challenge, but uh, there's, there's a lot of confidence that that's feasible. And uh, we still have at least a dozen years to go. And what we've seen typically is when the, when the end, end is in sight for a particular paradigm, it creates tremendous pressure in the R&D community to create the next paradigm. And we have a lot of advance warning this time. Uh, and already, in fact, uh, just using conventional lithography and going to the third dimension, because after all, even conventional circuits have 14 or 15 layers of material, so they do have some three-dimensional capacity, and uh, there's been successful efforts to build circuits with dozens and even up to 100 layers of, of circuitry just using conventional techniques. Uh, there are many different approaches. Uh, the most effective appears to be carbon nanotubes, which is what I had predicted uh, in my book four years ago. Okay. Well, the heat problem, as you mentioned, is quite fierce. Uh, engineers tell me that uh, very soon, even cubicle computers will generate so much heat you can fry an egg on them. Uh, let me ask you a question about the top up, uh, the, the top down approach, and the bottom up approach. Uh, when we had uh, Rodney Brooks on the radio, uh, he said that there are two approaches to artificial intelligence: top down and bottom up. Uh, the top down approach has dominated AI research for the last uh, several decades. And the goal there is to have a CD-ROM with all the laws of common sense, all the laws of logic on it. You simply put the CD-ROM in a computer, and all of a sudden your computer says, I think, I am aware, I am conscious, okay, I'm alive. That's the top-down approach, which failed rather miserably. Uh, we know that there are hundreds of millions of lines of common sense. Uh, we, we, we can't put them on a CD-ROM. There's so many of them. The other one is a bottom-up approach, which follows nature, mother nature, uh, allowing uh, machines to learn like bugs, uh, like infants, uh, to bump into the environment. And that approach is like a neural network approach. So could you explain to us a little bit about neural network theory? Uh, and this, of course, means that our brain, in some sense, is not really a digital computer at all, that perhaps we were sort of misled over the last 50 years in terms of the successes of silicon, but the brain is really a neural network and not really a Turing machine at all. Could you elaborate? Well, I've always been a strong advocate of what you're referring to as the bottom-up approach. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the brain, uh, the design of it, is characterized by only about 12 million bytes of compressed information in the genome. You might wonder, how could that be when the brain itself contains millions of times more information than that? Uh, and the way it works is the genome specifies a particular design, but in a particular region, the actual wiring of the connections is uh, random within certain constraints, and we know that that's the case, uh, having watched how that process unfolds. Uh, then there's actually kind of an evolutionary process where the connections that make the most sense in the environment survive, and it's actually twice as many connections in the newborn baby's brain as it exists a year later. Uh, there's a lot of self-organization, and the brain has the capacity to interact with its environment, make sense of, its, of the environment, as well as make sense of its own design and its own interconnections actually continually being repruned and uh, reconnected to 
to make sense of the environment and to learn. And that is really the only approach that's going to work. Uh, I mean, I think the psych project of Douglas that is is interesting. It's accomplished a lot, but I never felt that we could build human-level intelligence that way. We really have to build it the way nature builds it, which is a machine that has the capacity to learn, and then provide for its its education. Now, neural nets is sort of one uh, attempt based on a crude model of how human neurons work, uh, which actually builds lots of neuron simulators and connects them somewhat the way the brain connects them and let them self-organize and there's a number of different approaches to neural nets. Uh, they're all uh, very simplified from what we now know uh, is true of actual neurons. And as we're uh, as progress in reverse engineering the human brain progresses and we have more sophisticated and realistic models of actual neurons, we can build more realistic, biologically inspired paradigms. But in general, pattern recognition, which is my field, uh, works by emulating nature in these self-organizing methods. We set up some approach, which could be a neural net, uh, this thing called Markov models, which is the mathematical cousin of neural nets. They're evolutionary algorithms that actually emulate evolution. And actually part of human learning has a kind of an evolutionary process take place inside the brain for the better connections that survive. Uh, we use these techniques uh, in our pattern recognition approach They'll actually stimulate evolution, have different solutions to a problem, compete with each other through thousands of generations of simulated evolution. And these biologically inspired methods are very powerful. They give results that are essentially unpredictable, just as sort of human decision-making is unpredictable without actually letting it unfold. Uh, and this is really the approach that will work, uh, trying to define as analytic uh, logical rules, every bit of common sense, uh, it's not going to work. It's too complex, too unwieldy, and it's not how human intelligence works. Now, before we end this segment, let me say a few things about what a lot of people ask, and that is, what about the future of the job market as robots become more intelligent? Well, there are three kinds of jobs that are really very hard for robots to duplicate. The first, believe it or not, is blue-collar non-repetitive work. You see, robots have a hard time uh, with manual dexterity and non-pattern recognition jobs, like fixing a broken toilet, hammering a nail, picking up garbage, uh, things that we consider easy. Actually, robots have a hard time doing because they're non-repetitive. Second of all, human relations. Think of a lawyer. Only a human can argue to a jury or to a judge. And professors of the future will be like mentors, mentoring students, giving them career guidance. People in human relations. In other words, jobs that require intimate human contact, robots fail in that category. And the third category is perhaps the most important. And these are jobs that involve creativity, innovation, leadership, things that uh, robots are clueless about because of the fact that robots cannot create original things, at least yet. We forget that robots are adding machines. They add millions of times faster than us, giving us the illusion that they're thinking, but they're not really thinking at all. 
They're simply adding very, very quickly. And so the jobs of the future at the top end of the scale will be intellectual jobs involving, for example, artwork, creativity, innovation, things that require people to really become imaginative. Uh, for example, artists will have a job in the future because robots cannot create art. They can imitate art very well, but they cannot create new forms of art. And so in the future, robots will have a hard time with these three categories. First, blue-collar, non-repetitive work involving manual dexterity. Second, jobs that involve intimate human relations and understanding human behavior. And the third is intellectual workers, workers that are innovative, imaginative, create the agenda. These are the people who make breakthroughs in terms of society. And those are the kinds of jobs that I think are going to survive into the coming decades. And so take heart. The robots aren't going to take over anytime soon. And also the age of spiritual machines. And we should also point out, however, that Moore's Law, which is the basis of many predictions about the future, is slowing down. Transistors are becoming so small that eventually the quantum theory takes over. That is, you don't know precisely where the electron is anymore, and electrons leak out. So just remember that you have to take some of these predictions with a grain of salt. Moore's Law states that computer power doubles every 18 months, but it is slowing down as we begin to reach the atomic limit. Anyway, that's it for exploration. Go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, to find out what I do. I've written four New York Times bestsellers that you may find interesting. So once again, my website is mkaku, m-k-a-k-u.org. Good day.